Her name was Annie. And she was a Christian. And she had a very tough, tough life. Annie was born on Christmas Eve in 1866, just following the Civil War. Her mom died when she was very young, and her father took Annie and her one sister to board with a widow of an old army comrade who had been killed in the war. And it was not a happy arrangement. The woman had two children of her own, and her means were very limited, and so Annie and her sister were unwelcome and unwanted. Soon after, Annie's father took ill, and he too died. And Annie was passed around and finally placed with a caring family who introduced her to the Lord. Annie completed her schooling and became a teacher. But that only lasted three years because... In the middle of the second year, Annie began suffering from severe arthritis. She tried several doctors, but the arthritis grew steadily worse until she couldn't even walk at all. She had to quit her job, and the, arth uh, the arthritis, um, it continued to grow. Annie's doctors uh, gave her the final verdict this way. They told Annie that she would be a helpless invalid and so her parents were long dead, her foster parents passed away as well, and Annie and her sister were all who were left, and her one sister was very frail and struggling to meet her own situation, and, and Annie had no money. The last years of Annie's life, uh, most of her years, brought her no ease from her affliction no relief or lessening of pain and suffering. And so Annie was severely crippled for most of her life until finally on September 8, 1932, at the young age of 65, Annie died. And her name was Annie, and she was a Christian. And Annie had a very tough, tough life. Stories uh, like Annie's stories often come up when theologians and philosophers alike reflect on what they call the hiddenness of God. They might ask a story like Annie's, where was the God who loves Annie? Where's God hiding Do you ever ask that question during tough circumstances in your own life? I've no doubt, uh, in fact I know, many of you here this morning are asking that question right now in your life. Where is God hiding? If I were Annie, I think I would be asking that question each and every painful day. Where are you hiding, God? Are you even here? Those Jews that we've been looking at in the book of, Ex, uh, of Esther 
who were in exile in Persia were also asking that question because their lives were very tough too. They'd lost everything, their country and their temple, and they were wondering, no doubt, where are you hiding, God? Is this it? Are, are you here? And in Esther, things had uh, even become much worse, as you know, than losing country and temple because the king had just issued a decree giving the order uh, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, all on a single day. And living in the wake of that decree, their question must have intensified, where are you hiding, God? And in my opinion... If I had to pick, or if there is one question, the book of Esther was written to ask and to answer. It's that question when tough things happen. Where are you hiding, God? Are you even there? A few weeks ago, I I suggested to you that the book of Esther teaches and reassures us that Even though it may not always seem like it, God enjoys, it seems, working and often works through unlikely people. And he works in unlikely places and unlikely ways. And especially through seemingly insignificant events. And it's that last one, God works through seemingly insignificant events, that I really want to highlight again this morning This time in the face of that philosophical question, which isn't at all philosophical and wasn't at all simply philosophical to Annie or to those Jews in Esther, that question, where are you hiding, God? Are you there? And that's because the story of Esther couldn't possibly shout any louder than it does that Despite all appearances sometimes, God isn't hiding. He is there and he is working even through and especially through seemingly insignificant and ordinary events. We see this throughout the story of Esther. And we've looked at some of those um, amazing coincidences in Esther, the those dominoes all in a row in the story. If one thing hadn't happened in an unusual way, well, none of it would. And so we see those seemingly insignificant events line up. But I want to focus on something than just the details in the story. I, I want to look at also how the story is told and how the author of the book of Esther structures the story and puts it together. It's something that we miss out on, I think, a lot in our Bible studies. In my opinion, the inspiration of the Bible includes not only the story itself, but also how the story is told and how it's put together. That, too, is inspired. And if that's true, that God intentionally structured his stories in very careful ways, then that structure can be every bit and is every bit as inspired as the stories themselves, and we can learn something about what God is revealing to us by taking note of and studying not only the stories, 
but also the structure and how the stories put together. And so what about the structure of Esther? Is there something in the structure of Esther that supports this idea? Not just the details of the story, but in its structure, is there something there that supports this idea that God is not hidden, that God is there working through seemingly insignificant events? Well, obviously, I think there is, or I wouldn't be mentioning it. But check this out. See what you think. The the literary structure of Esther revolves around the misteh. Say, misteh. That's the Hebrew word most often translated in English, feast or banquet. The Hebrew word occurs 20 times in Esther. In all the rest of the Old Testament, only 24 times more. And so feasts, or mistaot, play a key role in Esther. And several commentators have noted, literary experts that look at the literary structure of how the author wrote the story, they've noted that those feasts in Esther are very carefully organized and and laid out. There are eight feasts in Esther, as you can see from the chart on the screen. It's quite a chart for a Sunday morning. There'll be a test after the message. (laughs) But there are eight feasts in Esther. And the author of Esther uses these feasts as a sort of infrastructure, a a frame, like the frame of a house, if you will, on which to hang the entire story of Esther. And commentators have noticed some things about these feasts. The first two feasts, for example mirror the last two. That's why I put them both in blue. Both pairs occur on consecutive days and in similar places. The first pair opens the book of Esther. The last pair closes the book. And then the third and the sixth feasts mirror each other. Both deal with a coronation or a promotion. And then, of course, the middle two feasts mirror each other and that both are those private feasts we've been looking at between Esther or among Esther, the king, and Haman. And something's going on, literary experts tell us, with how many and how carefully laid this infrastructure and framing of the feasts is in Esther. What is it, I wonder? Well, these same literary experts noticed something else. They noticed that the first four feasts all occur, the story hanging on those first four feasts, all occur when Haman's plan to destroy the Jews is just humming along. The storyline, if you will, is headed in the direction of the Jews being annihilated through the first four feasts. But then the commentator noticed that quite suddenly, for the last four feasts, the story, its direction does a 180, a complete U-turn, because for the last four feasts, the storyline is no longer heading toward the Jews' destruction, but the storyline is now heading toward the Jews' salvation. And when literary experts, I'm told, see that kind of pivot point in a plot, it's a really big deal to them. They get really excited. They have chili parties, too. When such a drastic change occurs in the direction of the storyline. It just, it's what just turns on literary experts, I guess. 
Just like I can tell, you're very excited about that structural change this morning in Esther. And because of that abrupt change in direction, we can find from a structural standpoint, standpoint what the author intended to be the critical, crucial, most important pivot point of the entire book of Esther. Something that the author likely, if he, if he was writing, thought of first and, and nailed to his storyboard first and then built the rest of the story around it in terms of, uh, of how the author told it. The author's big idea, the most important thing that the author wanted to tell us And knowing the story of Esther, if you just heard the story and you didn't know about the structural things and you weren't looking from a structure standpoint, there would be several candidates that we might all come up with that would be the crucial pivot point of the story. You know, Esther was chosen queen. and Yeah, that's an important part of the story, but structurally it's not at the center of the pivot point. So then we might guess, well, that time that Esther stood up and said, in response to uh, Mordecai's uh, encouragement uh, for such a time as this, when Esther stood up and said, I'll do it. I'll go into the king and risk my life, and if I perish, I perish. Well, certainly that must be the pivot point in the story. But structurally, as important as that is, it's not. Well, then we're scratching our heads. Well, what else is something big? and significant that happened in the story of Esther that must be the main point of the author's story. We might say, ah, I know what it is. It's when Esther finally points out Haman and says, it's that vile Haman over there, king. Surely that must be what changed the direction of the story from Jewish destruction to Jewish salvation. And while it's important, structurally, that's not where the author put that. Instead, he put something else. And what he put there, and what he put there has such deep and important ramifications for us living in the shadow of Esther as we live out our lives today. So what is it? What's that crucial structural pivot point in the entire amazing story? Well, it's got to occur between the fourth and the fifth feasts because that's where the pivot is. And literary experts, again, when they study the book of Esther, they can reduce it to one simple line in the book of Esther. One line that the literary experts say, from the structural standpoint, the author wants this line to jump out more than any other. And here it is. It's not even a whole verse. Here's the thing that happened that saved the day. Only seven English words. That night, the king could not Sleep. (laughs) And you say, that's it? Yes, that's it. And it's everything. That night, the king could not sleep. And the author of Esther chooses to place at the most critical pivot of this amazing story where the annihilation and destruction of all of God's people is hanging in the balance. This seemingly insignificant event. A king couldn't sleep. 
And you can tell. If you take a look at the story, you know that, well, yes, it is structured that way. If King Xerxes had slept like a baby that night, the Jews are doomed. Because if he sleeps, he doesn't read of Mordecai saving him from being assassinated. He doesn't learn that Mordecai was never rewarded. He isn't even awake when Haman comes bumbling into the outer court in the middle of the night. And he doesn't order Haman to honor Mordecai the Jew. And from that point of one sleepless night for the king, the storyline changes from the Jews headed to destruction to the Jews headed for salvation. All because that night the king could not sleep. So the story of Esther, by its very structure, loudly wants to speak to those questions during tough times. Where are you, God? Where are you hiding? Are you there? And to make the point that God does work through seemingly insignificant events. And some want to say, and many do, yeah, but you know, um, you don't really know that was God. And to that I want to say, I strongly disagree. Listen, this book is without question written by a Jew. It is such from the slant of a Jewish standpoint, everyone agrees this is a Jewish author. And it is simply shocking that God is not directly mentioned in the entire story of Esther because it's a Jewish author, and they're always bathing every bit of history. Look at the rest of the Bible in terms of what God did and what God said and what God will and God did and God and God and God and God. It's what they do for good reason. And along comes this book written by a Jewish author, and God's not even mentioned. It's a brilliant literary device where the author's saying, guess what I want you to pay special attention to? That absence of God in my story, to bring even more attention to the question of where is God? Is he there? And by the way, he drops hints in his story, even though God isn't directly mentioned. There's a hint when Mordecai tells Esther, listen Esther, if you don't get in there and get her done and save the Jews, deliverance will come from another place. Well, gee, what would a Jewish author mean when he is saying that deliverance would come from another place? God, of course. And God is hinted there when, when Esther orders or asks Mordecai to have everyone fast for three days prior to her going in and seeing the king. Well, gee, where would a Jewish community get the idea that it's important to fast? Well, Torah, the Bible, of course. And so this so-called hiddenness of God, nonsense. God isn't hidden. He reveals himself everywhere, all the time, in every detail, especially the insignificant ones, because to God there are no insignificant events. None. This is the God who numbers every hair on our heads in every detail. No matter how trivial they may seem, there are no insignificant events to God because he loves us that much. There are only those events that seem to us insignificant. He's not hidden. He's here. We just don't 
notice sometimes because we forget often, understandably in the face of a, a big pain, to notice God in all of those insignificant events in life, like a king who can't sleep without having a history book read to him. And by the way of application, you know where I'm going, right? He's here in your life too. Especially in the ordinary and insignificant events. He's there in every sunrise. He's there in children's, la in children's laughter. And music. He's there in music, in between the notes. He's there in the joy of a puppy. We just got a new puppy, and I see God in Janie every day. Not when she's going on the floor. <laughs> God is there, husbands, when your wife, without notice, just quietly slips your, her hand in yours. How many details, if I asked you really to sit down and start listing them, how many, how many things that happen in a day could you write, and if you chose to have the eyes to see and find God there, to seek him and we will find him, God says, how many things would make your list where you could say, oh, well, I saw God there, and God is in the midst of that, and God is there, and God is in the midst of that, and God is there, and God is in the midst of that, and God is there. Is there enough paper? No matter the hard things that are going on in life. Two PSs, and then we'll come around the Lord's table this morning. That big idea in the book of Esther that God saves his people through a seemingly insignificant event, that shouldn't sound strange to us. And here's why not. Compare the story of Esther to the story of redemption for the universe and all humankind, okay? Let me do that for you. First, in Esther, because of their sin, the Jews no longer live in Jerusalem with the temple of God in their midst. Instead, they are in exile in Persia, wondering, where is God? And the king has sentenced them to death because of their perceived sin. And then, through a seemingly insignificant event, the king couldn't sleep. The death sentence that couldn't be revoked is nevertheless set aside, and God's people are saved. Now consider, what is the overall biblical story of the redemption of humankind? Well, hear it again. Because of our sin, we no longer live in the Garden of Eden with God walking with us in the cool of the day. Instead, we live in the exile of history in a world wondering, where is God? And God, the king, because he is holy, was forced to sentence us to death. And then, through seemingly insignificant events, a baby born in a stable, yet another man hung on a Roman cross, the death sentence that was irrevocable, is suddenly set aside. And God's people are saved. Did Esther happen all over again? Simply because in the days of Herod, 
a baby was born. And Esther is still happening today in your life. Second PS, and we'll close with this. What about Annie? Well, I left some things out of Annie's story. I didn't tell you that by all accounts, Annie never once wondered, at least not deeply, where are you, God? Even through all of her pain, by all accounts, Annie saw him everywhere in seemingly insignificant events, events that most might not have seen because of the crippling arthritis that plagued her every moment of every day. And when Annie reached the bottom of the barrel, crippled and destitute, she began writing poetry. It's how she managed a a meager living to care for herself and her sister. And one of the poems that Annie Johnson Flint wrote became a hymn and is now forever part of the Christian church, testifying that God is not hidden, but is always here. Listen to the words of Annie's hymn. I stand before you this morning humbled and amazed at what this severely disabled woman wrote. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. And if this severely disabled woman can testify with the song of her tough, tough life that God is not hidden, that God is there providing and caring and loving, well, shouldn't we? And if God is hidden to you, Here's what I'd urge you to do. Get on your knees and pray and ask Jesus to be who he claims to be in your life. Ask him to reveal himself to you. And God will at some point in response to that seeking him, remember, seek me and you'll find me, and God will at some point take you to the place where there is no explanation other than he is indeed with you. He will take you to the place where you see him all the time in the midst of every detail of life. Seek me and you will find me, he promises, because I'm right here. I'm with you to the end of the age, at work, delivering, protecting, loving, empowering, and especially, Annie, giving 
because his love has no limit and his grace has no measure, his power no boundary known unto men, for out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you both for the story of Esther that you preserved for us over the ages. And thank you too for the story of Annie and the stories like hers that testify over and over and over again that you are not hidden, that you reveal yourself to us in power and in love all the time. And Father, help us to appreciate and understand and know the truth of that and to realize that if we nevertheless can't see you, it's not because you're hidden, but it's because maybe we don't have Esther's eyes or the author of Esther's eyes or Annie's eyes through which to see you. Oh, Father, give us those eyes to see you even in and especially in those abundant and even infinite, seemingly insignificant details in life where your love and your beauty and your grace just gives and gives and gives again. And in response to being overwhelmed by that, regardless of what else is going on that's hard, help that response of love and grace and joy to win out and pour from us what the world doesn't expect. Pour from us the love of God in Christ Jesus whose sacrifice now we come together as a community to remember. In Jesus' name, amen.